Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon, Marlowe. Hello, the web. How are you? Yes, it's Wednesday. My name's Sam Sethi, and welcome. We're going to be talking about business and technology today on the show. And joining me today is a good friend of mine, Richard Edwards. Richard is the CEO of a company called Datashake, and we're going to learn a lot more about that. I just wanted to read what Richard put on his LinkedIn. I'm a digital entrepreneur. I'm happiest when building a business with all the heartache and chaos that it involves. I've done my time in the corporate world in both leadership roles and consulting capacity. But these days, you're much more likely to find me in a dingy Shoreditch bar surrounded by a selection of her suit, very nice word, Richard, her suit, <laughs> individuals, than you are in the IOD, the Institute of Directors. My goal is to build something that matters. Well, welcome, Richard. How are you? I'm all right, Sam. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we will find out whether you have built something that matters. So, um, Richard, for those who don't know you, I'm, you're the CEO of um, Datashaker. What is Datashaker? So Datashaker is, uh, I guess the simplest description is it's a data management platform, which sort of means something and, and, and nothing. Um, what we do very simply is that we bring uh, data together for companies and then we, we output it in, in really one of two ways. There's either a live data model um, or a static data model. And what that means in plain English is for a static data model, we take the data in, we uh, perform manipulations on that data, we clean the data up, whatever that client needs, and then we'll deliver it to them, uh, deliver it to them uh, in like a one-off format, so maybe a, an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, and they, then they do whatever they want to do with it. So that's the static model. And then the live model, which is arguably more challenging, is where we do all the same things with the data. We bring it in, we'll process it, we'll manipulate it, we'll perform calculations on it, whatever that client needs, and then we host it for them. And then what the client has typically is a front end of their own. So they'll have um, a dashboard or uh, an analytics tool uh, something like that, and then their users will uh, create reports or run queries off their front end, which will then call the data that we're hosting. So that's that's you know, a, a more challenging business, I would say, but it's actually the uh, the biggest part of our business. So, where did the idea for Data Shaker come about? I mean, what was the eureka moment, your embryonic idea? Where where did it? jump out at you for sure well I, I can't really claim that so so uh my story into data shaker is that i came out of a a, a previous venture and and frankly was looking for something to do and I, and, I, and i did what i always do in those times which is go to my network and, and see who's doing interesting things um, and so to cut a long story short i ended up in a conversation with um a guy who uh ran an agency a digital media agency uh, in London and he said well it's interesting you popped your head above the parapet because actually we have something interesting and we're looking for somebody uh, to run it so so Data Shaker had existed in embryonic form for about 6 to 12 months before I got involved inside the agency they'd built it to solve the problem that their clients was always their clients were always presenting them with which is we've got all this data but surely we can do something more meaningful with it and the thing that was getting in the way was just the basic management and cleaning uh, of that data and making it fit for purpose so they built something which is what became data shaker so anyway i came in to the agency um with a brief to run data shaker as a as a standalone business with a standalone team so so i didn't have the um the embryonic eureka moment what i was looking for was something uh that was interesting uh that had probably already got off the grounds and had a little bit of funding around it having been in businesses before where you're starting truly from scratch and, and that's a great thing to do and I've done, done that subsequently but at that point I was wearing a few bruises from a previous venture and, and so was looking for something that was a couple of steps down the track. 
Okay, so you were coming in as the seasoned operator. The entrepreneur needed maybe more sensible hands to take over the reins. Uh, they, as a founder, probably stepped aside. Did they stay in the business, or did you take over the business totally? So they were uh, they they remained and actually remain still very much in, involved. Okay, they're the good. majority shareholders right. uh, in the business. In terms of day to day operations, um, pretty much uh, left me to it. I mean, obviously, I reported into the board uh, on a monthly basis, and 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 you know they they'd give me a an appropriately hard time and ask the ask the right tough questions. But operationally, um, pretty much left me to it, uh, which I'm very grateful for. I mean, frankly, they had their own day jobs to do as well. They were running a very busy and very successful digital agency in London, um, and so it was I think a relief for them that they could have somebody who was purely dedicated onto uh, onto Data Shaker. Cool. Give me an example of when you keep saying the phrase dirty data or cleaning mm-hmm. data. What do you mean? Can you just explain what that is? Sure. So I, I think another phrase that I've used already is, is data that's fit for purpose. So I think um, a business might have a, a, a goal to bring more than one data set together to, to, to present uh, a piece of insight that might be, I don't know, return on investment. Well, then you need the, the information around um, how much you've, you've spent uh, and, and then you need the information about what has that achieved to give you a return on investment. So it could be something, um, not even that the data's dirty, just that the data doesn't, the two data sets don't talk to each other. So actually inherent within DataShaker, we, we developed some uh, a, a unique language that enabled us to unify data. So you know, source data source A and data source B, which were completely unique and separate and were never designed to talk together we can bring them together through our, if you like, translation layer. So it's not even that the data is even dirty, and it and, and it might be, might be holes in the data, but it's more about, well, actually, how do you get data set A to talk to data set B to produce data set C, which is the insight that you're looking for. Okay, you, you call this data ops, yeah. I note. So is, is that a term that's common, or is that something you guys came up with? Um, I, I see it around a little bit, whether we came up with it or not. Genuinely, I don't know. Uh, we certainly didn't intentionally copy it from anybody, but it was it just, for us, it evoked what we do, which is, if you like, the dirty work behind the scenes. Um, there's a lot of, if you like, glamour in the world of data and, and suspend belief, if you can, for a moment on that. But there is, you know, that the front ends can look amazing and, and charting can look amazing. But of course, that's that's only as good as the data behind it. And, and I think just through experience that the, the agency had was that that was the thing that always tripped up their data projects was actually not having a, a, a tool that could manage the data and, and make that data fit for purpose. And of course, that purpose changes from client to client. Um, so it's not just one answer or one size fits all. It's about having a tooling that can listen to the client and say, well, okay, and the, or the client will say, we needed to do X, Y, and Z, and, and, and then we can configure our tooling accordingly. Because actually, whilst there are a lot, obviously, lots of different data sets. The, the, the challenges and the problems are pretty common um, from data set to data set. Okay. I know you, you host it on Microsoft Azure. Yeah. What, why Azure and not AWS or Google? What, what was the strategic thinking behind your choice? Sure. So um, it's, good, it's a good question because at, at, at one level, we could have gone any which way. Uh, and I think there are, there's, there's two real reasons. So um, our founding CTO, um, Phil Harvey, uh, had a real strength around um, the, you know, the Microsoft stack and actually now works at Microsoft, funnily enough. Um, and so there was an affinity there. And, 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 and Phil 
was a fantastic CTO, uh, and so there was there was absolutely no need or desire on my behalf to to, to upset that particular relationship. I mean, I'm, I'm not skilled or knowledgeable to, to, to do that. You know, um, Phil had made his decision around, uh, decision around that, and the other thing probably more important from my point of view was the the level of support that Microsoft were giving to to uh, startup businesses you know that BizSpark program which I'm sure you've come across o- yeah, o- no. over the years I know one of the guys who runs it Jeff Hughes used to run it Great, and and so they've been committed to that for a long time, and 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 we were very fortunate that we went through, I think, a couple of programs. We ended up on BizSpark Plus, um, which was uh, valuable to us in the sense that they 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 frankly paid for all of the hosting and a bunch of other things as well. So it was it was in part a financial decision, but also what I knew I was getting, I would get with Microsoft was a level of support that I didn't think I would get with 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 Amazon, or Google, or anybody else. Excuse me. Uh, so I knew that I could uh, pick up a phone or drop an email to to my nominated representative, and and you'll know uh, as well as anybody that trying to navigate Microsoft is an absolute nightmare if you're an outsider. I mean, it's pretty a nightmare if you're an insider, but even worse if you're an outsider. And so having that helping hand. So we had I don't know what it was now, probably three, four, maybe even five years of dedicated support from Microsoft, you know, support that ordinarily wouldn't have made any sense to them, any economic sense, because obviously they were making a bet on us as, as, as an interesting startup. So, uh, so to recap, it was the stack was 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 one that was fairly familiar to to our CTO, uh, and then commercially, I knew they were going to give me a, a ton of support way ahead of anybody else. Yeah, I mean, one thing. I mean, I used to work in Microsoft's consulting team so yeah they have a season track record of being consultants of working with enterprise businesses i suppose I mean, that is their sweet spot today they are microsoft is always their thing i mean office and windows now has become a secondary revenue mm. stream so it's quite interesting i just um the other thing i noted is it, you've called the platform that you uh, host everything on katsu <laughs> yes <laughs> Did, did somebody like curry or i mean what what, what what's the uh, what's the background to katsu I, d- I don't mean the name so much but you know we talk about querying and database stores and formats so is this um an all-encompassing platform that somebody purchases from you um how, how does katsu work it so Katsu is is really the DNA of the platform and, and actually is is the name that we gave to the uh, the query language actually so that the, the way in which um uh, one would query the database uh, and is, is is inherent to what we do. Um, we, we, we've never really, although it's in the public domain, we don't necessarily market it uh, as anything distinct from actually paying or buying our services as a platform. So there's no, there's no separate element or component uh, that will allow you to engage with Katsu separately um, to actually uh, working with us on a, on, a, on a whole platform basis. The name, you've, you've actually hit the nail on the head straight away. That as, as a group, we found ourselves going to the Katsu curry shop just up the road <laughs> in Soho, um, where we were then based. And, and we were looking for a name. Honestly, we wanted to give an identity rather than just, oh, here's this thing that we do. Actually, let's call it something. Yeah, um, good product marketing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, do you know what? It was probably named 3,472 that was being banded around and everyone just looked at each other and said, well, that's, that sounds like quite fun. And actually was was meaningful to us because we genuinely all had our face in a trough of katsu <laughs> on a daily basis. So uh, there's nothing there's nothing more to it than that. Good. Um, so where does DataShaker go? What, what, what's the um, next few years look like? I mean, I, I was going to say what was the next five years, but that's probably too long. Uh, 
you know, we're in the middle of a, an AI machine learning explosion. You're dealing with data. Sure. Um, you're dealing with information. I mean, is is that the next iteration of where the company goes? I mean, possibly. And as you'd imagine, we, um, you know, these conversations, well, these sorts of conversations are always live in in, in any business. Probably more so a tech business than than than, than any other. And, and certainly, AI is a territory that that interests me. Uh, greatly uh, I, I'm not too sure what the future holds and I, and I should just digress slightly to say that we are in some interesting conversations with data shaker at the moment uh, which, which might see uh, well to cut to the chase uh, a change in ownership okay. so um, so those those conversations are, are ongoing right now so uh, we'll see how they play out um, you know if, if they play out and 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 the business does have a, have a different owner going forward then, then they'll take it forward the way they want to if not we'll we'll have a look at things because it, it's fundamentally a very solid very profitable uh, business. It's a good platform, I think, as you say, and as you suggest, to take advantage of what feels like it's it's the next wave or, or the coming wave of AI. You know, it feels like we've sort of had um, big data sort of seem, seem to peak as a, as a fashionable thing, although obviously it, it's clearly not gone away, but as a, as a, as a topic to discuss uh, a, few, a few years ago, maybe yep. three or four years ago, uh, and, and then everybody seemed to be talking about blockchain, and I think you know, decentralization is really interesting, um, but in terms of these are the fashionable, fashionability, if that's even the word, um, of what's being discussed, and I think AI machine slash machine learning, I think, is clearly the next, the next thing, and offers I think huge, um, huge potential, so yeah, no. Whether whether that's within um, the structure of of Data Shaker that that, that I exploit <coughs> that, or, or or actually beyond Data Shaker, time will tell. Okay, so um, let's take a little step back in memory lane. So, young Richard, where did you grow up? Manchester. Manchester. Yes. Yes, we're not allowed to. Just, I'm going to be very clear now. Okay, so I'm a massive Liverpool fan, and Richard is a massive Manchester United fan. And for two decades as a Liverpool fan, I have had to suffer the slings <laughs> and arrows of Sir Alex Ferguson and that very good Man United team, which was very good, I have to say. Um, I am in heaven right now with European Cup number six in the trophy cabinet. And, uh, yeah, just let's say talk sport radio's phone-in show is dominated by very upset Man United fans, and I can't see it changing. Anyway, that's just me. I thought I'd have to get that in quickly. Sorry, Richard. Well, well there's a joy of six, but it's not 20, is it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's just next season. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, so we did say we weren't allowed to talk about football. Yeah, we, yeah, that's another sports show that we can talk about. <laughs> anyway, um, so you grew up in Manchester. Yes. Um, mum and dad entrepreneurial? Not at all. Uh, mum and dad GPs. Okay. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of the family uh, in the medical profession. So, so couldn't even be further, further away from the. Uh, so you were the, the disappointing son. <laughs> well, the only son. So a double disappointment. <laughs> no, in fact, the only right. child. <laughs> okay. So the family practice just cobwebbed out disinherited right so uh, seriously no interest at all in that no uh, and uh, do you know what I'd this worked well really well on radio I'd had it up to here because uh, all of the talk he's, around, he's six foot six by yeah, the way and my hands above my head at the moment and um yeah, I, th I think it's natural, isn't it? When you're, you go one of two ways, don't you? When you're surrounded by something and immersed in something, you're, you're either going to react positively or negatively to it. Uh, and I just had no interest. Uh, and I also don't think I was bright enough. Okay. <laughs> that's fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> if that's what you feel. Um, so 
University? Where was university? Well, I studied in Manchester, uh, interestingly enough, and actually went to uh, what was then still the Poly, so MMU, Manchester Metropolitan University. And uh, and if I'm if I'm really honest, I think it was a lazy decision. Um, at the time, I obviously didn't think it was, but and I think it sort of characterised. If I'm being brutally honest and, and, and reviewing myself, sort of uh, up until and we'll, we'll come to this in due course, but up until the age of about thirty. I kind of just let things happen, uh, you know, and, and, and thankfully, I guess I was bright enough and, and could talk well enough that I sort of got by. Um, but I kind of just let things happen. And Manchester, you know, look, it, 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 it's it's uh, it, it continues, obviously, to be a wonderfully vibrant city and, and has been for a long time. But if you think of that time, sort of late 80s, it, it really was starting to, to come alive. You know, it, it, it had been a land of dark satanic mills for quite some time, although we didn't know that at the time. You know, we love moping around on the dance floor to Morrissey and hands <laughs> behind our back and all of that. Um, but it actually felt like a, a great place to be. But that said, if I had my time again, I would definitely go somewhere else just just to experience, you know, a, a, a life, a university experience uh, somewhere else. Okay, so you, you come out of university yep. um, straight into corporate land. Yeah, so just riffing on that theme of not really knowing what I was doing and just falling into stuff, my, my then girlfriend threw, um, threw the milk round book at me and said, and this was probably about April or May before we were leaving, or maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating, probably January or February, and said, look, what are you going to do? You've got to make some decisions here. And I, and I should say that my mum my, my and dad have always been uh, phenomenally um, trusting and enabling, and allow and allow me to make my own decisions, which which I'm eternally grateful for. But what the what sort of the downside of that, frankly, is that there wasn't necessarily a drive to say, right, hey, come on, son, you need to now start thinking uh, about your future a little bit. Um, <clears throat> So the Milk Round uh, booklet came round. I had a look at the companies on there, applied for a few uh, in there and, and was fortunate enough to, to, to end up uh, on the, the, the graduate scheme at Sainsbury's. You know, uh, not really having a clue or any particular interest in retail at all. It was but a, you were doing great for stacking the top shelf. <laughs> Indeed, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> they spotted that. Um, so yeah, so I ended up on the graduate scheme at, uh, at, at Sainsbury's and, and realised within about three weeks that I absolutely hated shop floor retail. Uh, just just everything about it I couldn't stand. Um, didn't wasn't using the brain uh, very much. Was a lot of unsocial hours and 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 just just didn't just didn't really work for me um the good news and where i was very fortunate is i was plucked out of the shop floor maybe they could see this was for my own good and 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 ended up uh being uh pa uh to the uh the chap who ran the the then hypermarket division so i got pulled out of the shop floor and and then went into uh head office worked with him for about a year which was you know glorified chauffeuring if i'm being brutally honest but but what it did do was give me a window into uh, the upper echelon uh, and the, the decision making, the strategic conversation. So it was a real privilege um, for someone of my age and, and complete lack of experience to see how a major business ran at the highest level and a business that was clearly at scale and, and, and touched you know, every high street in the country. So, so there were some important seeds sown then, if you like. Uh, and, and then I, I decided at that point, I was starting to enjoy the bigger beast that was retail. I just didn't like being on the shop floor. Um, and then I'm, I came out of that role uh, and, and again, was somewhat fortunate, I think, to, to get a job as a buyer. Uh, and, and it turns out uh, that buying was a great job and was a great job 
for me, absolutely loved it. Um, did a bunch of roles in there. Uh, the, the best role, I think, when I was 25, 26, probably still the best, probably the best role I'm ever going to have in my entire life, to be perfectly okay. honest with you. So I've got a great future behind me, right? Um <laughs> Uh, was tropical fruit buyer for Sainsbury's. So I used to ponce around the world and, and emphasize the word ponce around the world following the sun, you know, buying fantastic products, you know, whether it be grapes, melons, kiwis, I mean, what, what I have it, went around the sun on someone else's dollar, uh, being wined and dined by uh, all the, the, the local, the great and the good. But more importantly than that, actually getting really close to products with farmers in the fields, you know, negotiating with... Uh, melon growers, Israeli melon growers in the desert. You know, I think if you can stand toe to toe with those guys in, in the desert, they're probably the toughest negotiators that I've ever come across, with the possible exception of the Greek grape uh, growers as well. Uh, but it was a great time. It was I great. I think there's fun. a book in there somewhere, Rich. I think nothing's publishable. All oh, right. Oh, dear. That's a shame. Negotiating your way around the world. Maybe, yeah. maybe for Brexit, you can go and help them. You said the B word. <clears throat> I know. I'll put the pound in the coin. <laughs> oh, the co- sorry, in the jar. Okay, um, so let's have your first track. Um, I think we're going to have Simon and Garfunkel, and it's the track called El Condor Paso, which I haven't heard. So why that track? So I guess most people's uh, route into music or their first experience of music is their parents' uh, record collection. Uh, and... Simon and Garfunkel uh, was an absolute favourite of, of, of my mum and dad's. And for whatever reason, it might have been the cover on the, on the album uh, as much as the music itself, but, but this, this, this track has always remained so evocative to me. And Simon and Garfunkel, generally, we had Bridge Over Troubled Water at our wedding as a song, which is, which, is a, which is a beautiful song. But if I go back and think about... Sorry, where I, Bridge Over Troubled Water was your wedding song? Yes, but I'll be your Bridge Over Troubled Water. Oh, I see. I'll listen to the lyrics now. Oh, Okay, <laughs> that's not a great start. It is. It's a good song. Okay, um, so yeah, it was just it was my my first real uh, memory of music. Okay, well let's have a little bit of Simon and Garfunkel. When we come back, we're going to find out what Richard did next and how he got into being an entrepreneur. Oh, 
go a little bit of simon and garfunkel uh, i was thinking i didn't know that one but i did actually when it started going take you back to manchester did that you know mum and dad's little vinyl going round. 1977 yeah big flares <laughs> 2-1 <laughs> fa cup final <laughs> oh, oh we're gonna have this show that's gonna okay you we're doing this <laughs> yeah I, tr- I truly did yeah but we will end on uh, 2019 so it's okay um Anyway, we were talking briefly uh, about the fact that you were um, the man from Del Monte. Indeed. You were travelling the world as a buyer. Um, and where did that end? I mean, because obviously you didn't stay with Sainsbury's forever in a day. So what happened next? So uh, absolutely, man from Del Monte, a great analogy. Um, so uh, I guess I did a good enough job there that they promoted me and they promoted me from the, you know, the world of tropical fruit to household cleaners. So uh, product-wise, less interesting, but um, development-wise, uh, a, a leap forward in the sense that, you know, you're now dealing with um, Procter & Gamble, uh, Unilever, people like that. So I, I, I uh, did that for a while. Um, and then out of the blue, um, someone at Sainsbury's came to me and said, look, Rich, um, we're looking for some people to go over to New England and to help the Shores business over there in New England. Would you be interested? And, you know, I think I'd said yes before the, the sentence uh, ended. I was, what, 28, 29 there. So um, uh, Sainsbury's had made an acquisition of um, Star Market in New England and needed a team to go over. And, and basically the core team of Shores Supermarket had a lot of work to do around the integration. So we went over to effectively keep the, the mothership running whilst um, the, the team over there were focused on the uh, the integration. So that was back into fresh produce um, or produce. Um, so I had to learn how to say tomato not properly <laughs> they literally did not understand. if I didn't say tomato they had no idea um, which was humorous but it, that was a great year um, great exposure to uh, to a different country to a different way of doing business um, and you know was, was was an absolute blast to be honest with you uh, sadly, it was only a, a, a year. Um, that was that was that was how it was always set up. And then I came back, and and, and they dropped me in to run uh, soft drinks at Sainsbury's, which was quite a big gig. So I, I you know, I was, I was delighted to be promoted, and, and then to be handling some some big brands, uh, all all the big soft drinks companies that you can think of. Um, so certainly a challenging environment, um, but a ton of fun. I mean, just great fun. I've, and I've always enjoyed, and I still enjoy being at, at that if you like that that front line of business between the buyer and the seller and you know I've, and I've done both sides and I don't really mind which side I'm on but I just love being on that intersection um, that real um, 
you know, place where, to use a horrible analogy, where the rubber hits the road, where you're actually doing real stuff. And whether that's as an entrepreneur building your own product or actually looking to sell products in a supermarket, I, I think the fundamentals, you know, the product market fit, if you like, is, is still conceptually the same, uh, the same thing. And that's how uh, I guess I came onto the radar of GSK. So as part of, of my drinks portfolio at, at Sainsbury's, we had um, Ribena and Lucasade. Uh, and I was in a meeting one day and I think one of their head honchos um, was in the meeting and obviously saw what he liked. And then uh, I got approached uh, to, to, to go to what the buyer would always regard as the dark side, to go onto the, uh, the vendor um, brand side and, and, and ran, uh, I, was, I was UK, uh, what was I now, UK trading director. So I looked after the, the UK supermarket um, business for those brands for, for so Ryan, being able to say, game, gamekeeper. Well, exactly, exactly, yeah. So you knew the inside out, and so that's why they wanted you, I guess. I guess, yeah. Could have could have had James, uh, James Milner as your Ribena uh, um, <laughs> man. You he know? must have been about four then. <laughs> okay, he's still like Ribena then. Anyway, Indeed. I'll get those digs in early. Um, no, they're not digs. Um, right, so you spent, what, three years, roughly, two, two and a half years, three years there. Um, What's really interesting next is you went and started your first startup. That's really what... So you've done corporate land. You're about mm. to go into first startup. What's the first startup called? So uh, I came out of GSK uh, into a business called Nutrinovator, which was a play on nutrition and innovation. And uh, it was with a, uh, some fellow, uh, some colleagues and directors uh, at GSK who I guess also had a bit of a niche to scratch, and it might be worth just talking a, a, bit, a bit about that because you use the word "interesting move," and I think you know sometimes that's that's you know a, a cover for what the hell were you thinking? You know, you were on this trajectory. And it may well be, but I, I didn't say <laughs> it, it. It certainly is for some people. Um, and I guess as much as I'd enjoyed, and I really had enjoyed my education in the corporate environment. Um, I was increasingly getting getting turned off by the the inevitable politics that you get where obviously where, where there's people there's politics and where there's more people there's more politics right um, it's great that you get to play with a big train set big budgets but it, it just I started to get pushed further and further away from that front line that I talked about uh, and it, you know when you're managing people who are managing people who are managing people some people get off on that stuff and that's fine you know I, I respect that that's that's a tough job to do but it just it just wasn't for me and I think I remember just falling into a conversation with somebody else at the, at the company and you know his first question for me was, okay, so what's your next role? And I thought, this is interesting. I've only been in this role for three months. And it's kind of like that, that just that treadmill and that trajectory that... Yeah, it's if hard you're not to going see. up, you're going out. Well, exactly. And there was there was no sense of the value that you're creating in the role or what was working for you. In the role. It was always, to your point, it was always about what's next. And I, and, and, in, and in that moment, I, I felt as though I could see the future mapped out for me, which was which was, was pretty lucrative. I mean, you know, they, they they bribe you at stupid levels to work to work in those companies, as, as, as you know, and they have to bribe you because, you know, it, they're highly pressurised um, roles. Um, but at that moment, that's that all paved into the background onto insignificance, um, paled into the background. And I just thought, I, this is not what I want. I don't want my um, future to be mapped out um, in, in, in a company such as this. So so that, that, those thoughts occurred to me and came to life very quickly. And at the same time, it's funny how these things happen. Um, you know, the, the, the other guys in the, in the company were already, I think they were somewhat down the track, maybe six months, 12 months down the track of, of thinking about leaving and doing their own thing. And anyway, one thing led to another, and 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 we all left to uh, to form up Nutrinovator. And what was Nutrinovator? I mean, you say nutrition and innovation, sure. But what does that mean? 
Well, the, the, the fundamental shtick of that was that at, at that time, and, and maybe still, I don't know, um, that it felt like there always had to be um, a compromise between products that were nice versus products that were good for you. It, it felt like it was slightly hair-shirt. And, and, and Nutrinovator's view was, well, that doesn't need to be the case. We just need to work a bit harder. We can apply science. So there's a lot of science involved in terms of how do we get products that are good for you and that also taste great so it doesn't have to be the compromise. So, And I, and I think that's a, a, a perfectly, if you like, valid and, 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 and noble goal. Were you ahead of the curve? Because <clears throat> there's so many nutritional bars and drinks now that take front and centre. I mean, we're, we're talking, what, 2003? It probably mm -hmm. wasn't on trend then. But now, you know, you can't move in a supermarket for the want of a healthy bar or a snack bar or a protein bar or a nutritional drink. I mean, and that's just supermarkets. You go online and there's a 101 websites now selling you everything from... Um, you know, well, mineral-based drinks that, you know, will add the isotonic back to your body. Well, maybe not that. I don't know what I'm talking about now. You can clearly tell. But, you know, uh, was this ahead of its time, maybe? It's funny you use the word isotonic because the background for the guys involved was Lucozade. Oh, and, okay. and obviously Lucozade had, had made a lot of that. And isotonic was probably one of the first scientific phrases that, that, that came anywhere close to common parlance when they were promoting me laws. Remember probably the Daily Thompson adverts going back, you know, we're betraying our age here, but, um, you know, that goes back a long time and when they led the way on sort of science-led science um, food and beverage products. Um, ahead of the game, I don't know, maybe. Um, I think there's certainly a bigger, a, a wider a wider choice now than has ever been and, and clearly people are ever more focused on um, products that are that are healthy um, for them. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe there's some smart people involved, uh, notwithstanding myself, but, you know, there were some, some guys in there who really knew what they were doing. So what happened to it? Did it, did it make it? Did it fail? Uh, I don't know, because I got fired. Ah, okay. Any reason? Because <laughs> I was useless. <laughs> okay. So I think what... Um, it, look, in, entirely justified, and I, and I think, uh, and I was pretty upset. Um, but I think if I, if I look back, um, what do I see? I, I see... Um, uh, on my behalf, a lack of understanding of, of what it meant to be an entrepreneur, uh, and so I didn't deliver. So I was, I was, um, uh, I don't know what the title was. Let's say head of sales. It's my job to go out and recruit um, and get listings in retailers, um, and and to do that from a standing start was 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 tough. And uh, you know, and, and subsequently in my career, I've come across a lot of people who've gone from the corporate world to the to the startup world, and the and you know, the attrition rate is huge. Yeah, I always remember doing the same and going to people well it's like cutting an umbilical cord you were you had this safety net while you're in the corporate company you know somebody else did whatever you, was needed and you did your little bit of the whole pie exactly and then you go into an entrepreneurial world well no it's just you and you know if it fails it's you who's failed and and people just don't get that pre-requirement to be an entrepreneur i guess there's an interesting article i just saw a couple of days ago uh, online in uh, uh, from inc magazine you know ink.com magazine um which is a which is a, a great read for anyone who's, who's interested in the world of entrepreneurship um and and there was a lady in there talking about what it what it was like for her jumping from the corporate <coughs> world to the entrepreneurial world and, and and she made the very good point which i've made for a, a number of years is that i thought i was brilliant i thought i was hilarious i thought i was this that and the other uh, i'll give you that you are pretty much yeah there you go maybe not intended but the point is that it's not you that's brilliant or hilarious or interesting it's your eight million customers a week 
that that gives you that weight in, in your relationships, your professional relationships. Take that away, and it's like the oxygen is is removed from the room. And I remember a, 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 a quite a, a startling and, and somewhat stark moment for me when I was sat at my desk. So we had an office, um, and I was sat at my desk, and there was a phone on the desk, and I think my laptop was on the desk, but there was nothing else. And I and I literally thought, what do I do now? Because you plug in, as you know, as you, as you you're in a corporate world, you plug into a machine, you know, and and. You know, the, the, half of your job's already done for you. Sure, yeah, I you, mean, you sit in and you drive it, but it's kind of... Well, I remember being in the corporate world, being able to pick up any phone, go, hello, it's Sam Sethi from Microsoft, or hello, it's Sam from Netscape. Yeah. And the person at the other end's jumping already. Correct. Oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. What, what do you want? Can we have a meeting? Sure, no problem. Hello, it's Sam Sethi from no company in particular. Who, what, yeah, why? They're, no, not, they're not even listening at that point anymore. And I try when I go into London, when I used to do networking meetings more than I can be bothered to now, um, and I used to laugh. Me and my wife call them willy-waggers. <laughs> and it was a guaranteed... Uh, we used to do the open coffee mornings, if you remember Sure, those. absolutely, yeah. And I remember just going in there and people coming up to me with cards and it had senior VP, something, something, big corporate, whatever, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And that was their justification of who they were. They'd hand you the card first to justify them rather than... and. And somebody told me the way to disarm people like that is, so what do you do? Yeah. What do you mean, what do I do? I work in this big company. And but what do you do? What, what What's the bit that you do? And mm. people suffer that. Um, and I remember my wife was running MSN. She was pregnant with our second child, very heavily pregnant. And we'd gone to this VC networking dinner at Home House. And everyone assumed it was my little wife who'd just turned up with me. And I'm going, by the way, of the two of us stood here, She's the businesswoman of the year last year and runs MSN. I'm just some bloke who happens to have a big gob and runs TechCrunch, I think, at the time, or something stupid like Europe. Right, so everyone was talking to me because they wanted to get coverage in, the art, in TechCrunch. But she was the real senior person there, and they just ignored her until I just pointed it out. And so I think corporate... People in corporate land, they're not my favourite, um, I have to be honest. I think it's, it's a safety haven. I think there's some people who do well in those environments, but going back to your point, I think they're political animals. Um, they they navigate. I know, and I can't mention who he is. <clears throat> he lives in our village, is CEO of a very, very large company, and has just been added to the Google board. Wow. Dull as friggin' ditch water, mm-hmm. right? He says nothing. He has a, an opinion on nothing. It doesn't matter whether it's football or work or politics. He has no opinion. So you ask him a question and he'll deflect. He's, he's Teflon, right? And of course, by being Teflon, by being the man who says nothing about nothing and does nothing wrong, he's got himself to be CEO of this massive, and I'm talking massive company that we would all know, and to get invited onto Google Europe's board because he's now got this other title. So I learned that I'm maybe like yourself. I'm, I'm well, I've been called a maverick um, and, and just I'm totally unemployable in, in a corporate world and that's because I have an opinion and I can't shut up about having an opinion. Maybe that's why I have a radio station instead. But, but that's what worries me about that I think there are people who are naturally born to be entrepreneurial and there are naturally people who are born to be in that corporate work world. And I, I, I think sometimes you can cross over, but I think it's not a natural step over. I think you're right. And I think I'm, I'm mulling over the nature-nurture thing, really. Um, 
because I, I, I tend not to want to accept fate complete. So uh, are you born to be an entrepreneur? Are you born to be a corporate guy? I, 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 person, I, I guess there's there's some core DNA that would that would make you a, a better or worse fit for either of those. Incidentally, I think if you can find a way to straddle the two, then 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 the world may be yours. You know, if you yeah. can find a way to leverage the assets and the resources that, that exist in the corporate world, but you can do it in such a way that, that, that is effective and impactful, ideally for the good of humanity, um, then then that's an unbelievably powerful place. Yeah, a uh, friend of mine, be. Nicole Yershin, who was mm-hmm. on the show, yeah. uh, she used to term it intrapreneurship, mm. and she was very good uh, at doing that. So there is a space for that, but very few companies allow little satellite startups within the main mothership funny you should say that um i'm reading a book at the moment um which is called non-bullshit innovation by david rowan you probably know david yep. at uk wyatt and it's an interesting uh, it, it look it's a really interesting read and, and and what he calls out is examples of well, it's explicitly not innovation theatre, of which there's tons of bullshit. And, you know, every that, maybe that's another wave I was talking before about big data and, and blockchain and, and even innovation. It attracts a certain type of person who's all over it um, and can spout all the you know the, the, the all the jargon and all the bullshit, but actually doesn't do anything differently. And, and by the way, that is a, a, a great survival technique, as you say in in, in the corporate world. Mm. But what I like uh, about David's book and, and about these examples or about examples uh, that he cites in general is it's about doing stuff, and and corporates generally aren't very good at doing stuff because the way you don't get fired is not to do stuff so there's a real tension at the heart there and and certainly um again the examples that he cites in his book of, of where people are doing interesting innovation it's, it's where they're left alone uh, and it, you know it takes a pretty strong maybe maverick's the right uh, the right description um you think of someone like uh, a great name astro who heads google x for uh, alphabet you know He's a maverick, and 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 he ensures he he provides that air cover for for his team to go and experiment. I mean, typically in, in innovation in a, in a large company is yeah, go and innovate and go and find some amazing things uh, that work, uh, but don't cost us any money, uh, but but don't distract us, that don't cannibalise our existing etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and that's because the mindset is different, and I understand that. You know, big corporates are are IP sweating machines, and and that's fine, yeah, but they have to understand when they. If they just continue to sweat that IP, then eventually that IP will inevitably die because things will come up around it. So, do you, know, the other thing, do you want to eat yourself or have someone else uh, well, eat you? So, I'm sure Kodak wish they'd uh, had somebody in innovation who looked at what digital cameras did rather than die on the vine. But you know they invented digital cameras. <coughs> yeah, that's yeah. the, the, they, the they, irony. They invented a digital camera and, and, and then clearly found it difficult. And I respect that. I think it's easy to... I'm not suggesting you are mocking, but I think it is, is easy to mock um, in, in hindsight. But you can bet your bottom dollar if you were sat in that in that board meeting and you were looking at your P&L uh, as such as it was and then... Some maverick stands up in the corner and goes, "Hang on a minute, we should we should be diverting, you know, twenty five percent of resource to open." Nah, no, nah, never going to happen. Never going to happen. Of course, you never see the end. Poof, it's gone. It's too late. So I think it's really probably the hardest thing for corporates to do uh, is to reinvent themselves. Yeah, I think I think Kodak's a, an unfortunate period in time because that was before books like The Innovator's Dilemma, before there were multiple examples of companies having to eat their own lunch in mm. order to survive. So mm. they were they were the poster child in MBA world of what not to do. Exactly. Um, and, and they suffered. Um, okay, so so it didn't 
start off very well the entrepreneurial path let's <laughs> say um that's that's your words not mine yeah um but you found yourself going into an area which i was surprised that you went into next which was business coaching yeah so i'm, I'm sat there after um uh, you know bruising uh, experience in the entrepreneurial world and and 100 percent, i thought about going back into the corporate world because it was safe it's what i knew um i'd thought of forgotten that epiphanal moment of i need to get out of here and suddenly i was thinking i need to have a salary um um, but uh, thankfully, and I don't know what drove me, but I, I didn't make that jump back in and I decided to follow um, r- really a personal in, in, indulgence and I make no apologies for that and, and, and set up Thrive Coaching, yeah, um, which, uh, you know, al- allowed me to work with people on a one-on-one basis. And I've always been fascinated and continue to be fascinated with how people make decisions um, for themselves and whether that be around career or indeed any other topic of their of their life and I've always I've always got a lot out of those conversations and, and where you know if I'm able to help uh, in, in, in any small way then, then I get a huge buzz out of that and, and thankfully I still whilst I don't thrive as, as, as long since um, shuttered and I'm not doing any paid for work in, in, in that way I, I still get asked from time to time to sit down with people and, and, and be that sounding board and, and be that friendly critic if you like and it, it, yeah it's something I get a lot out of so then you know rhetorically you might say well why aren't you still doing it and and then my answer is i just found it really really tough to scale that business you know i i didn't see a way for me to to get the income uh off the back of that business that that would give me the life that that, that i was aspiring to and, and by the way that's not aspiring to a level of income that i was uh, achieving at, at, at gsk I, that, that that's not the prime motivator but ultimately we've all got to put bread on the table we've got to pay the mortgage and stuff and i just i just didn't see a way uh, and that's my failing didn't see a way to uh, to scale that business to 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 where it needed to get to financially i think i think everyone who's out on their own will say the same thing it's valuing your time. It's being able to charge yourself at a rate that means that you can maybe not scale, but maybe at least afford to pick and choose. Um, it's very interesting. You know, I've got Tiffany St. James coming on and I've got Shah Wasmu, both consultants, and mm-hmm. they're going to be talking about actually how you scale mm. your self you know how do you take yourself from the one man band if you look at both of those two for example and nicole uh they all have virtual businesses now you know they Mm -hmm. have you know people they know within their network who fundamentally they can call part of their company although they're not head kind Um, and that i think is quite an interesting way but again that's only come around recently that's Mm -hmm. not been a thing that you've been able to do in the past people we're always either looking to be on the payroll or off the payroll and if you're off the payroll well i'm not working with you so but now people are much more i guess charles handy portfolio careered and happy to yeah I, you know i'm a web developer listed on five different people's websites um and equally i've got a graphic designer and a video guy who i claim are part of my company but clearly are independent but whenever i make a pitch they're part of me so there are ways nowadays much easier but you know that is the challenge and also just how do you charge for yourself i guess uh, it's the one thing i still hate you know how much should i say i don't want to lose the business uh, if i say it's x thousand pounds i'll go no thank you very much and you go oh no i really need that thousand pounds that'll be really useful as opposed to yeah and i hear some people go yeah ten thousand pounds for a speaker gig and you go really to stand up and just talk in front of a PowerPoint, you, you're going to charge 10K. They go, yeah, 
I will. And people buy them because they, they sound expensive and therefore they must be good. And, and we're rubbish at that in this country. Yeah, yeah. You, you would you would say that perhaps in North America they don't they don't suffer quite from from, from those concerns, and they go, "Yeehaw, I am ten thousand pounds because I'm worth it." And, and 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 all power to them. Yeah. There's a great story um, of the celebrity um, photographer David Bailey, um, who became famous through his photography work initially with the Beatles, particularly in Swinging London. Now, so so he was a, a jobbing photographer, but doing doing quite well. And when he was approached by uh, the Beatles management, say, look, we, we want someone who understands, you know, the environment, swinging London, you're part of it, da da da, da. I want you to take some pictures of the Beatles, please. And he says, well, I'm really busy. Sorry, I haven't got any slots. And they were like, mm, come on, it's the Beatles. And he's like, look, look, I'm really, really... And he was, this wasn't, there was no bullshit, he was genuinely busy. Anyway, on a third or fourth time, he came back and he said, all right, bugger it. And whatever the price, the regular price was, let's say it was a pound, um, he said, it's 10 pounds. And of course, what happened is he went, yeah. So he went, What? You're going to pay me £10 or 10 times my normal rate to take these photographs. Yeah, yeah, we want you. Because he suffered like the rest of us did from arguably under, or at least not testing the market to say, well, let's see what they will pay. So he, he, he quoted 10 times to shut them up, to make them go away. So, of course, what he did, and he cancelled his other bookings, made his, took his photographs of the Beatles, and the rest is history. Wow. You know? and it's a, but that just came from, the, I think the answer is, there is no inherent value other than the one you ascribe yourself yeah and I, I think is that bravery i mean i was i was interviewing a guy called marcus kalki um from he's a sales what did he call himself a fitness guru for salespeople, mm-hmm. right so he said he can take sales um pipelines to 96 percent closure um by just training he said you know salespeople aren't born they're made they're, they're coached and he said with he, he has this methodology called Sandler's methodology, and and it was really interesting. I, I I'm putting out that as a podcast later, but it was really interesting listening to him. And he he was fundamentally right in everything he said. And it was like, I get it now. I see what you're doing. What he was doing was getting the person who was the buyer to try and say no at every stage. I'm going to get you to say no to me, so I'm going to charge you ten thousand pounds. No. Okay. Thanks a lot. There's the meeting closed. We're out of. Rather than I'm going to tell you the whole meeting, I'm going to spend hours and hours telling you about the product, and then I'm going to tell you the price right at the end, and then I would have wasted two hours of my life. And it was like, I'm going to try and disqualify you out of everything I can. So my goal is to get you to say no. And by the time you've said yes every way down the line, fundamentally, the last thing is, well, where'd you sign? And Brilliant, and I thought it was great. Well, I think, and, and I've talked about this before with um, with with colleagues and friends. Is you know, a, a fast no is sometimes better than a very slow and tortuous yes. Uh, I mean, you can debate that, but the, the, the principle of the point is the same. Yeah, and I would also just come back to something that you said before about whether you're a born entrepreneur or a born corporate person. And I think there is something about your core DNA, but there's a lot that can be learnt. I've got no doubt about that. I think provided you're open to learning and, and, and you're coachable, I think, and I agree completely with this, this chap, um, and you're talking about, you know, the sales, for instance, is a process. You know, it's not, you're not just a natural salesperson. No. Typically what that means is you're just a nab- natural gobshite. Is yeah. that you're very noisy and you look at the apprentice and you look at their version of sales, which is just wah, 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 shout at people and be very larry with fat knotted ties. That's not, Sales, you know, sales is listening. Sales is about matching need with product, etc. And it one hundred percent can be taught, in my view. Yes, and I think that's the learning that I think people, even as entrepreneurs, we have to learn that. Yes, you might have an inclination, but you still can be coached and advised and mentored. Um, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be an army officer in my previous mm-hmm. life, and uh, no, I don't mean the 
the time before I was born, but, but earlier on. And um, it, I do believe, though, that you are either born a leader or you're not. I don't think you can be made a leader. Uh, and I fundamentally, uh, you will have known from the playground the kid that you would follow or who'd be captain of the football team or captain of the netball team or cricket team or whatever it may be. That kid just has that presence, right? It's just they have it. And then everything around them can be taught. So when you go to Sandhurst, what we've done in when you get selected is you've whittled out all those people who want to be an army officer but haven't got natural leadership skills. Mm. And then what they do is they teach you skills to enhance your natural leadership. And I think I think the same is I could I could tell you an entrepreneur child pretty much mm. if you gave me a classroom i could tell you which one's going to be an entrepreneur i can't tell you which one's going to be successful but i could tell you which one's an entrepreneur and then with the coaching and the right mentality you could probably tell which one's going to be successful yeah i think it's something about drive and it's something about optimism i think if you don't have those two things forget it, it doesn't matter how much technical skill you have if you haven't got drive and you're not a fundamental because op- frankly look at the stats if you weren't an optimist you wouldn't be an entrepreneur yeah and i think you know i look at my both my girls they're not entrepreneurial I mean, they are consumers. They don't want to try and earn money, particularly. Mm-hmm. They they will earn a bit of money because they want to go out, but they don't have an incentive. Whereas a friend of mine's son, uh, Christopher, he would go uh, when he was 14 or 15 to other clothes shops, go and find old clothes in there, go to eBay, go to uh, Debop, put them up there and make a profit. Amazing. And, and so, you know, I know for a fact, whatever that child does, Chris he's going to be an entrepreneur, hmm. right? He will make shed loads of money because it's in his DNA. But my Good daughters, sadly, I don't think they are. Right, well, going to have one... Well, they'll find their own niche. Right? <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. I'm going to play one more track before the news. Uh, this one's Madness. Why Madness? Oh, right. So, um, so I was 14, something like that, 14 or 15, and uh, a chap at school just turned around to me one day and said, uh, said Rich, I've got a spare ticket for Madness tonight uh, at the Apollo in Manchester. Do you want to come? I thought, hmm, okay. Didn't really know much about Madness. I think it was baggy trousers here and that kind of stuff, so quite early on in their career. And I said, all right. So, well, I've got to check with mum and dad first, obviously. But anyway, uh, cut a long story short, went to the Madness concert. First ever... Uh, you know, live pop rock concert and just blew me away. I mean, it was just an incredible experience surrounded by all these mad skinheads just absolutely off their head and us two little 14-year-old boys just going, whoa, what have we walked into here? And and the reason I've chosen this song in particular, One Step Beyond, is that for the whole concert, they were just chanting One Step Beyond. One, I had no idea. Encore came and it blew the roof off and, and it's just an abiding memory. My first live musical experience. You're beginning to feel the heat. Well, listen, Buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockinest, rock steady beat of madness. One step beyond.
listening to Sam Sethi on Marlow FM. Don't worry, he'll be back after the news. On 97.5 FM and online, this is Marlow FM 97.5. Oh, hello and welcome back. How are we all? Thank you very much. Uh, the news there. Um, I'm joined today, if you, if you don't know, by my good friend Richard Edwards. We've been chatting about his career, his entrepreneurial career, both present and past. But um, we're going to be looking at your future next, what you're up to potentially with some of the other things you're working on. I just want to finish off a little bit because it was a product I used back in the day. It was called ZebTab and... Um, what was ZebTab? <laughs> ZebTab was direct-to-desktop content delivery, those really annoying little pop-up things that came on your screen when you were trying to do something really important, and then they would pop up with, with probably something more of a hobby. Um, so we we, uh, we did deals, uh, and apologies, but we did deals with Manchester United. I noted um, that, but I, I, I let it go. <laughs> yeah, we actually talked to Liverpool, Everton, uh, so a lot of football clubs, obviously, which is which is a, right, a, a great way into, um, into people, as it were, into their interest, but then uh, across a number of magazines and so on and so forth, which we deliberately made it quite um, light if you like and, and, and to touch on people's interests rather than their work so a healthy diversion um, if you like um, yeah and, and look it was an interesting business I, I got into it because a friend of mine um, had already started uh, going down that route and I came out of Thrive Coaching was looking for a business to get involved in uh, and as always it's about the people and, and so I knew uh, Rob and he said, look, if you're looking, uh, I kind of kind of need a co-founder here. Um, it wasn't technology that we owned. It was technology that we licensed. Uh, and we took it to market and, you know, and, and had and had some success. Uh, yeah, it, raised, it certainly got to my radar. So, yeah. Yeah, we oh, yeah we got. I forget now what the, the, the all of the, the 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 data behind it, but it was you know hundreds of thousands of desktops we were on. Um, we ran advertising through that, so it generated uh, income. But I think for us, we 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 had proof of concept uh, and we had arguably product market fit, certainly to an extent. And then it was about right, how do we push on and accelerate? And 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 we found it tough uh, tough to raise money. Um, you, you might remember at the end of the the noughties, it was quite a tough time to raise money. But I don't think it was just about that. I, I I think the the commercials were quite challenging. You know, every business under the sun seemed to be ad funded in those days, and and you need a lot of ads um, to generate income to build a company off. Uh, and I guess we couldn't quite convince um, the venture capital community that that that. We we were a proposition to back. Yeah, I mean, I, I likened it to a product in the Web 1.0 days, Pointcast, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which the famous story, obviously, how true it is, I don't know, you know, it was worth 700-odd million and the guy wouldn't sell and then fundamentally it was worth nothing about, you know, six months later. Um, well, that was an idea that was before its time and, and, and my understanding of the reason that that crashed and burned was, was simply the size of the pipes or lack thereof, that there was so much rich content they were trying to push through that when it was deployed, it just it just slowed people's systems up. So it, it became yeah. uh, unusable, but great, great, great idea. Well, that's where I saw ZebTab there. I yeah. thought it was the aggregation of content. I mean, if you now look at to 2019 where we are now, you know, we've got push notifications, we've got RSS, we've got, you know, notifications on our, our phones. I can imagine ZebTab being a, a notifications desktop integration of the content you want. You know, that's that's where I would have thought it would have naturally fitted if you were doing it today. I think I think you're right. I think we live in a in a in a world now that has 
many more notifications. So some people might say, do we really need any more? So maybe it's about smart notification. I mean, my phone's pinging all the time yeah. um, with, 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 with various things. But I think it's, look, it's always about, partly about the idea and, and then partly and, and more so about the execution. And, and so for some reason, we just didn't quite get the stars to line up. Um, we had a good run at it, as I say, had, had some success. Um, but at the end of the day, we just couldn't quite make the leap to that next you know, to I that think next timing phase. is golden. I think I think the the idea, as I say, it hit my radar. And, and if you think, I was doing probably TechCrunch at the time mm. and I was reading everything, looking at everything, but, but stuff that would stick in my mind mm. was very little because I was just, it was literally like, you know, 25, 30, you know, PR, Newswire announcements every morning, you know, and trying to find anything that was worthwhile was hard. So, no, congratulations to you for doing that. Thank you. Um, okay, Let, let's move on to today, because we're, we're going to run out of time, and I really want to cover what you're looking at. You, you've got a project, oh, now, just to be clear, we're not going to talk about the name of the project, because mm-hmm. it's still in, it's very much um, a project under wraps, yep. that's fair to say. Yeah. Can you explain what the project is? Let's let's try and define that is because I think it's a very interesting project. Sure. It, 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 in a nutshell, it's AI powered trading. Okay. So trading in the sense of trading on the markets in the city. Um, so this, this, and, the, and the reason that we can't talk about it is is that at this stage in our journey, we're not FCA regulated. Uh, and so if I was to um, in any way, shape or form be seen to be promoting and encouraging people to invest on a retail basis, I'd be in some serious trouble. And, and so the FCA rightly um, protects the, you know, the, the, the population from, um, you know, get me rich, uh, get rich quick schemes, uh, which we're not. But uh, we want to make sure that we stay uh, completely the right side of FCA regulation. So that's the only reason that, we're, that, that I can't uh, give the name out at this stage. But the story is, uh, who is now my co-founder, a um, friend of mine, um, worked in and around the city for some time. And, and, and this, this guy is, a, is brilliant. He has an absolutely brilliant mind. He has a, he has a very big day job heading up uh, data for one of the very big agency groups. And he's based out of Singapore. So this guy is a brain the size of China. It's a good analogy now. Um, and and he, he, going back to his time in the city, was somewhat frustrated at the, the sheer amount of money that he thought was just being chucked around on a, on a whim based on uh, emotional emotion-fueled uh, judgment and 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 he said actually you know what I think I can do a better job than this I think I can build a system that's that uses statistical analysis to make better decisions okay now you know, the so-called algo trading is not necessarily new in and of itself but I don't really care what anyone else is doing um this chap then spent uh, a couple of years building uh, a platform you know classic in the basement uh, in the attic um uh, you know project put it into the market or trained it with four years of uh, also more than that some 15 years of trading data from from the FTSE and set it to work and then over the next four years it just did really well it just performed uh, and it consistently gave, uh, returned on on his initial modest investment but he got to a point where he wasn't sure where and how to take it forward he had a thing had a, had a very clever um thing um but of course that's that's just one element of, of any proposition so about that time we started talking we we knew each other from some from, from other business um sort of relationship if you like relationships 
But we just we just got talking about this, and it became clear to me that he had something of, of value. And and frankly, a lot of people had seen that with him before, and had and approached him and said, "Look, you know, I'll build this for you." And and he just didn't. I guess there wasn't the right fit. So for some reason, he he, he looked at me and said, "You know what? Actually, I, I I think it comes down to trust. I trust you, and I think you've got the right skill set. Why don't we see where we can go with this?" So that was a couple of years ago. I got involved. Um, put some people around it, put a little bit of money around it, brought some industry expertise into it, some different skill sets um, uh, with a view to just seeing where we can go with this thing. So we went into it, you know, pretty low risk, didn't didn't risk a huge amount of capital. We, we put some in to provide some working capital, as you'd expect. You know, we, we have to uh, pay for service every month and so on and so forth, but no one's taking a salary out or anything like that. So it's, it's, it's pretty lo-fi in that sense. Um, we've been running for a couple of years, we started on the FTSE, as I said. And the only reason we started on the FTSE was that there was a wealth of data to train our system. Because that's what, you know, AI systems, they, yeah. they need to learn through data. So we could chuck a load of FTSE data at it. Uh, but it was clear to to all of us that if we were to truly maximise the value of what we have here, then ideally we'd, we'd prove it's worth beyond the FTSE. Now, frankly, if, we, if you have a successful FTSE trading engine, then that might be great too. But we've taken the view that actually let's see how far we can push this because it's a vanilla platform in the sense that you feed it data, then it should be able to provide interesting insights and recommendations for, for any market. We have to prove that hypothesis. But today we're trading on the FTSE, um, the Dow, the, uh, the S&P, P. Uh, we've dipped our toe into the currency market with sterling dollar. Um, we've got gold coming down. Uh, the tra- Nasdaq is is trading as well. So we, we pretty much every month we're we're adding a market, um, and it, and it, look, the, the the returns are looking are looking interesting. And that initial hypothesis of machines and you know, deep mathematics can do a better job than emotion fueled humans. Um, seems to be playing out quite nicely. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I've got probably three questions to ask. Mm-hmm. So, uh, everything I, I read about AI and, and, and everything about machine learning, fundamentally, it's it's historical data that's being fed to it to try and make future predictions, right? Correct. And it's the algorithm that basically, which is a decision tree. Let's let's break it down into what it 100%. is, right? Yeah. It's a smart decision tree. If this, if then, this that. then that, yeah. right? So, you know, a lot of people go, oh, it's AI. And then you go, eh, it's just a big if this, now. But yeah. it's a clever if this and that. And each one is determined by the scientist or the data scientist, you know, how to then make their decision tree, right? So, um, but you're taking historical data. Now, we've seen uh, computer trading before where you know we've seen in its basic format back in the 80s the crashes where everything would go red because one computer's gone red all of them go red instantly or, or everything goes blue because all of them have gone blue right so it was it was that machine trading in fact when i worked in the city for a little bit i mean very little bit and boring i mean bond traders were probably the thickest people you've ever met because all they do is press a button when it went blue or green or red you know it wasn't it wasn't it, that intelligent it's the swaps and option traders with black and shoals models that mm-hmm. were really the smart guys right mm-hmm. so uh, with algorithmic trading or ai trading or machine learning trading i don't mm-hmm. know what we're going to end up calling it um you're fundamentally taking this data now what you're telling me from what we had as an offline conversation you're beginning to see it work and work smarter can can you tell us you know i think you said that you, you made a certain return on the first few months years then a little bit more than a little bit more can you talk about you know how you're seeing it improve with time 
Yeah, so... Um, by the way, your summary is absolutely correct. So, uh, for me, um, AI is the application of machine learning. So, I, I think they are sort of, they are one and the same thing. In, in my view, you know, people may have a different um, definition, and we're absolutely um, looking at historical data. And interestingly, you know, we're all human, so we have the same fallibility as anybody else. And I'll tell you, on an almost daily basis, one of us will pitch an idea into our WhatsApp group to say, oh, we should come out of this trade or we should open this because we almost can't help ourselves. And we go through this loop every day, which is no, leave the platform alone. So we, we're fully aware of, of, of the shortcomings of, of humans. And even this, you know, it's about the fact that we, we have this business that talks about that. We still find the the the, the instinct to, to intervene. You know, there's some data out today on interest rates um, from the Fed, which no doubt will affect the markets. So, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? And I think that's an easy... Um, trap to uh, to fall into, but back to your question. We um, the first couple of funds that we ran um, returned low single digit per month, which is which is really nice because when that compounds up over a year, obviously that's that's quite significant. Uh, our third fund, which finished uh, about three months ago, um, did just over five percent um, per month, uh, and then the, the existing fund is is performing ahead of that. And and it's what's called a Darwinian algorithm, which which the whole point of it is that it constantly improves, it constantly learns, and beyond that, we're also looking at an improving the parameters around that and how we structure the platform. So so a big thing for us was the introdu- introduction of, this, of the trailing stop, which everyone says, well, of course, you didn't have a trailing stop, but well, we didn't to start off with, but we introduced that and, and that was the step change from the low single digit up to over 5%. And then as we, uh, as we increase markets, um, that starts to improve our performance. So look, I, I, our, our development plan is, 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 is you know, as long as your arm of things that we, that, that we want to do and that we want to add, uh, we want to, add to the platform. But so far, and we're playing it, you know, we're, we're trying to be cautious with this, but the, the, the performance data is is great. So, I mean, it's funny, I, we started off with you talking about data shake and me asking you about AI and machine learning. Mm. And we're ending up on a conversation about you working with data and mm. AI and machine learning. Yeah. And just when you said about the feds having, you know, interest rate changes, it just dawned on me, again, take ZebTab, you could take all that aggregation of data, which is what you're having to do. So the, this is market information that's publicly available let's say feed that into the machine because that will affect the algorithm completely so you're taking knowledge that you've got from when you did ZebTab knowledge you've got from DataShaker aggregating that with some new stuff which is the learning of AI and machine learning and you're producing one algorithm for as you are today as you said a vanilla platform but it's a trading platform today but it could be something else so you are I guess looking at your career coming to the pinnacle of everything you've You've learnt, maybe. That's a slightly scary thought, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Synthesis of something. Uh, Well, yeah, and it'd be odd if it didn't, really, I suppose. Um, If if you weren't synthesising, to use that word, bringing different um, skill sets together. And I I, I should say, you know, I have a big birthday next year. And... I know, 30, you wouldn't believe it. I, I was going to say, gosh. <laughs> uh, and it's funny how those, you know, those those landmark birthdays, uh, you know, sort of for, force you to pause for thought, albeit I'm not there yet. Um, but, the, you know, the big sort of, if you like, conversation I'm having with myself right now about the future is um, not so much about Data Shaker, but, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give that all the attention that, that it needs. Likewise, the, the trading platform, we've got big well, hopes and you have got plenty that. of time for Data Shaker, you shouldn't be touching the algorithm and should be just getting off that WhatsApp group and letting it do its own thing, because it shouldn't be doing anything with it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, 
But I am starting to think about, you know, how how can I um, harness, you know, what, what, whatever skills and, and what have you I've got is how do I want to spend the next, you know, decade or half a decade, um, you know, deploying those talents. Um, and I, and I, I am intrigued by... Um, this coming wave of, of AI and the opportunities that opens up. I was at, we were talking before, I was at COGX um, conference um, last week and, and just sat there in awe of, you know, speaker after speaker talking about how they were trying to solve big fundamental problems um, and a lot of AI going, I mean, pretty much every conversation there was, you know, you're, you're deploying compute at scale with, with intelligence, you know, which is, I think, another def- definition I would give for AI. So if we are to solve the health challenges, the climate challenges, maybe even the political challenges, the economic challenges. For, for me, it seems um, just it just seems obvious that, that that AI has a role to play in there. So, in terms of the future, um, I'm, I'm I'm sort of interested to find out what my best fit is in that future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with with data, let's talk about that for a second. You know, we've made it searchable. You know. We've made it, sorry, indexable first, searchable mm-hmm. with Google. Mm-hmm. We've now, you know, we're making it intelligent. We're, we will make it augmented and visual very soon with AR and VR. Mm-hmm. And we're making it speech-enabled, you know, with voice. So fundamentally data at the heart. And oh, and by the way, the inputs to that data are becoming better. We talked about the fact that Pointcast was a failure, possibly, because it didn't have enough pipes the pipes are too small well now mm-hmm. we you know we're, we're on the cusp of 5g possibly mr trump 6g if he wants it you know and it'll and be the best g ever it'll be the best g ever super <laughs> um i can't do a trump i just realized i can't do a trump no, but it was but, fun watching you try <laughs> i've got no hope yeah that's not a career going forward <laughs> um but but fundamentally i've always said in every computer system you know um you're looking for the bottleneck you know it was processors with the bottleneck mm-hmm. um so we had mainframes and then the processor wasn't the bottleneck because you had intel chips and then the network was the process problem so you had ethernet and then you know we've always found bottlenecks for what what we have i mean with 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 alexas and voice enabled devices the bottleneck right now is the home network it's the instantaneous need to say madam a here's my question up to the f- servers in Alexa, bing, 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 down within a nanosecond, mm. and it has to answer it and get it right, right? Yeah. So I think it's fundamentally amazing, but I know the next generation of Amazon devices are going to have a chip locally, like an Intel chip before. The network's not quick enough, so we're going to localise the uh, intelligence. Interesting. But eventually, we, as we say, you know, 6G, 7G, 8G, 9G, pick your G, mm. um, you know, that latency won't exist and so intelligence will go back up to the cloud again but um and, and then you come back to a fundamental challenge of humanity is is that only half of the world is actually connected to the web albeit that's more than has ever been i think mary Meek brought her slides which i've not looked at the 350 yes. slides. i will do i enjoy it every year uh, i'm that much of a geek but i haven't yet but i did see the highlight which is for the first time ever internet con- connectivity is over 50 yeah. percent which is to be celebrated because that enables everything you've just talked about but it also tells you that half the world isn't connected now obviously um you know what google alphabet are doing with action you know, with the uh, well it was a business they created loon i think wasn't it balloons yep. up balloons in, up in, there in and the facebook's got a project and yeah yeah and elon musk's putting his 300 odd low level uh, satellites to do the same thing so we will connect the world it just takes time Agreed, but uh, but even when they are connected, I mean, I, I think you know, it, it it's again 
affordability in devices. You know, if you go to, I think one of the one one wonders of the world is watching how other countries do things differently to what we do. We always think in the West that we're at, at the bleeding edge, but. Mm. I remember reading about Africa's impasse, yeah. you know, the mobile-to-mobile payments because they had no banking system. I remember reading about, you know, how in India, you know, they were changing the way that people were using phones because they had Nokia phones, they didn't have smartphones. And, they, you know, still to this day, you talk about a £1,000 iPhone. Well, you know, the farmer in India is not affording that one. So, you know, any network derivative that we're building out isn't going to work if you're just designing for that 1% of the world. 100%. Um, and I think, you know, again, just being topical, I think um, Facebook with uh, Libro, you know, is coming out. If you read the deck, it was it was to address the 30-odd percent of the world that had no banking. Unbanked, yeah. You know, I don't, I mean, again, I'm not sure that that's where they're going to... I, I was trying to work out, would, would a farmer in India, let's say, use that example, you know, set up an account on Facebook, then set up an account with um, the separate wallet on Libro and then find that they can buy anything with it? You know, I can't see them ordering an Uber. That's, that, well, that was the odd thing. Is the, the example companies that they were saying who would be using it as a currency were those that were certainly not going to be in the 30% of the world who haven't got a banking system. I think... It will prevail if it's the if it's accessible, and if it's uh, if it's easy to use. I think ease always wins, and, and banking fundamentally is about trust, like so many things are. But I think particularly banking for obvious reasons. So, and that's a big conversation around Facebook anyway. But let's just say Facebook is a trusted brand for the moment. Let's say, mm. well, indeed. But my my point is that who do you th- who would you back to develop an easy uh, you know, an a, a application that's enjoyable to use, would that be a Facebook of this world or would it be the Royal Bank of Scotland? Yeah, no, I'd go with Facebook. Exactly. And and that's the point, I think. And I think that that presents an opportunity. And obviously, there's, they're already maybe using Facebook anyway, so it's not so much of a, a leap. It comes down to ease, I think. If, if the trust is in place, big question, discuss. If it's easy to then sidestep into that, I don't think I don't think they care whether it's dollars, Libra, Bitcoin, or, 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 or whatever. If I can trust it and it does what I want it to do, then I don't care. I actually think it's a brilliant step forward for, 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 for getting Facebook for a second. If we are to move away towards more digital currencies, I think it's a great step forward. Two billion people have access to it eventually. I don't know the time frame. Um, that's great. I think the, the the issue is it's a stable coin, which is quite different to the Bitcoin, which mm-hmm. is a, an unstable coin, mm-hmm. to say the least, in terms yeah. of its pricing. Um, but somebody described it as just another fiat currency because it's linked back to yeah. a basket of currencies. So it's yeah. just another currency. It happens to be Facebook's currency. And I think what's interesting is um, I don't know how much time we've got to open up this conversation, but is the um, is is potentially a decentralised nature of that. And there's a big topic here around, uh, and we know where this conversation would go, but but the concept of nation states versus you know decentralised government. And then if you look at something like uh, what Estonia are doing and, and have set, you know, I've been on this road for, 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 for some years now about their e-residency and, and, and their concept of the nation as an app and, and people buying, at, you know, products and services um, from the best provider. So, so, so why can't I, uh, you know, use the Estonian app to, uh, well, to be, to become a resident of Estonia and then submit my taxes through there, all done, you know, all, all done digitally. So I think, I think decentralization 
uh, is a very interesting concept and clearly is there's some conflict there with some of the prevailing political forces that we're seeing at this point which is the opposite of decentralization which is you know isolationism nation state uh, which is which is that which is you know a, a mindset that's in my view unfortunately um coming to the fore all over the world well i think we, we're at the point of capitalism 1.0 is pretty much done its death we need a new capitalism system. We need a new political system. We need a, a nation system. You know, what does it mean for, uh, I don't know, a German working in London who is, is naturalised here because his children are here, but at the same time he's clearly born in Germany, but what does it mean to be German, English or Italian these days? I mean, I don't know. And I think when there's 2 billion people in a country called Facebook that has a greater reach and a GDP than many countries. I think what we're going to see is governments aren't going to allow... Uh, this is where I think a lot of the tension occurs, you know, with Facebook. I think governments are looking at them going, you've got too much power, you've got too much control, you've got too much influence, you've got too much... No, 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 we're reining you back in, boys. Mm. You're not having this. This is our pla- power And play. that's the point, they're afraid. <coughs> they are. They're afraid of that. And I think they won't... That's the worry with Libra. I don't know if central banks will allow them to be regulated to sell and trade the currency that they want to trade, which, if they are allowed to do, is a massive step because then, actually, if Libra becomes a universal currency, when why would you need to trade the dollar or the yen or the pound or anything? So the Fed will want to have a massive influence and impact yeah. on that. But even if they get the Fed on board, the elephant in the room is China. Yeah. How are China going to respond? They already block it out. Well, anyway, so I think China will respond with their own version through WeChat, which is fundamentally mm. a company that is controlled by the Chinese government anyway. Indeed. And if you look at WeChat, it's the model that Facebook's trying to copy in the sense that WeChat's messenger has most of the currency trading through mm. it. So I, I can see Facebook's trying to get to a point where messenger or a version of WhatsApp stroke Instagram messenger aggregated the new version is the one that will have this cryptocurrency allegedly a cryptocurrency it's more like a fiat currency that will go through it um yeah big big uh, big horizon that's coming up but I, i'm that's what i love technology because there's always something interesting and in coming up rich we've come to the end of our time though today can't believe it <laughs> thank you so much for coming in today i My hope pleasure. you've enjoyed it loved it yeah it's been great to chat I've, I've really enjoyed the journey that you've been on i'm looking forward to you telling me more about this ai trading company when you can um coming up in the next few weeks i've got on monday i've got uh, david ibstiksky i'll try that again ibstiksky he's the uh, chief evangelist for alexa uh he's going to be talking about what alexa's doing and where they, that's going uh i've got quite a few guests tiffany st james who started the uk government online social media so some really good guests but until next time, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.